Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. The documentary Blood Memory looks at America's Indian adoption era. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with the film's director about the federal program, which resulted in more than a third of all Native American children being forcibly removed from their homes and adopted into white families. We'll also hear from music contributor Vaughn Phoenix with recommendations on this month's edition of Punk Black to Go. First... The restaurateur, author, CEO, and founder of Vantrice Hospitality Group, Chef Deborah Vantrice, stands at the intersection of food and culture. She describes her cuisine as modern, global soul food. Her restaurants include Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Pours, Aretha's at the Point, and the newly opened Serenidad, a Latin soul cuisine restaurant in Cascade Heights. Chef Deborah joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for that amazing introduction and welcome. It's a pleasure being back with you. Oh, likewise. The pandemic was such a disastrous time for restaurant and hospitality businesses. How were you able to bounce back? I'd say on a leg and a prayer, you know, honestly, (laughs) you know, the support of the community, I think was everything. You know, it, it was the wind kind of beneath our wings during that period of time. So we pivot and we pivot again and, you know, we've survived. Mm. So now, in addition to Twisted Soul, you have two new restaurants to your credit. First, please tell us about the concept of Aretha's. Well, Aretha's, it is named after my mother. Her middle name was Aretha. And I wanted a restaurant that paid homage to the moms from across the world. You know, I got my start cooking from my mother. 
you know, and from other mothers being in the kitchen with them. Uh, I think any chef, if they're being honest, for the most part, got to start with a mom. And this was my way of giving back. So we're doing still global cuisine, but the focus is more on the comfort foods that our moms would make with a little twist. And you are famous for those creative twists. What might be an example of one of those special interpretations of a mom's comfort food at Aretha's? Well, one of the signature dishes, which is Aretha's uh, pot pie. My mom loved pot pie. So we did a play on chicken pot pie. I used duck instead. So it's a smoked duck pot pie. One of our other big sellers, uh, Todd Monthu, is a Thai Indian dish. And it's really something, it's a fish patty, but instead of using a fish and deboning it and using it in a patty form, we actually took a whole fish, a whole catfish, did the same seasonings with uh, fish sauce and tamarind and a few things and ginger, and we deep fry it, and then we serve it with coconut grits and a tamarind hot sauce, and then a curry coleslaw. So we are trying to express, you know, our our love for the South, our local cuisine, our local flavors, but, you know, do it with international dishes with the flair. Now, Serenidad, defined as Latin soul food with roots of the Caribbean and Latin America. Mm -hmm. This is your second restaurant, and it is not far away from Aretha's. First, would you explain why you wanted to open both these restaurants in the Cascade Heights area? The Cascade Heights neighborhood Uh, The southwest side of Atlanta has long since been a source, a community that has supported me and driven across the city, no matter where I was at over the years, to, you know, come to my restaurants. They are incredible people. It's in a historic area with some of the, you know, top names of influencers in the South over the years but they had never had anything other than just traditional fast food type restaurants or chains in the area. There was an opportunity to bring my cuisine, bring a little bit of flair into that neighborhood, and I jumped on it. There are some historic restaurants there, like the beautiful restaurant that serves traditional soul food, and we didn't want to step on the toes of those legacy restaurants there. So we set out to see what what else was needed in that community. And by creating the two restaurants that I created, I was filling a void. So we could give them not just Mexican food, but we could go all the way into the Latin cuisine and take that a step above. And then at also with Aretha's, be able to offer them some international cuisine in a very nice setting. So that's, you know, that's why I made the choice to go there. I think it's fantastic. How would you describe Latin soul cuisine? Yeah, we, when we looked at, you know, my travels and 
my family's travels, you know, as a flight attendant previously, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in South America, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Spain, in Mexico, and all of those countries are tied together one way or the another through history. I love that cuisine, but I felt like it was not getting its due in some of the restaurants in the United States. You know, we think Mexican food, we think it's just a taco. But when you go to those countries, your experiences are amazing. You know, some of the top restaurants in the world are in these countries. And I wanted to take the soul of those restaurants and bring it in to Atlanta with, with my flair to it. So fusing those ingredients, like we have a paella, but instead of it being mixed with rice, it's served on top of blue corn grits. We're doing duck tamales with a pecan gremolata. Yeah, so we're having a lot of fun with some interesting flavors. And it's so many different cuisines that we can choose from when we go under the umbrella of Latin food. And that's, you know, that's really what we're doing with it. Just, you know, having a great time seeing where we can put our, our soulful twist in and having fun with some mezcal and some tequila also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw your daughter is, do, do you say the director of drinks? What is yes, her title? Yes, the beverage director. Okay. And she's come up with some creative twists of her own. Yes, she has. Yes, she has. Uh, very, very proud of some of the things that she's done. You know, her contribution has been amazing for both restaurants and even Twisted Soul. So she's beverage director of all three and quite creative in the cocktails that she has come up with. Did she accompany you on any of your travels? I know when you were working as a flight attendant, that would not have been easy to do. But was travel an important part of your family life? It was an important part of the family life. At the time, you know, I was married to her father and her father played basketball overseas. So, you know, she was a baby, you know, at, at a few months old, she had a passport and was flying back and <laughs> forth. Now, ironically, once she got older, I would try my best to get her to actually go on trips with me. And she would, you know, she would rather go, you know, to the movies with her friends than go on a trip to Paris with me. Oh, I couldn't understand course. that. I couldn't understand it. But as it turned out, at the age of 17 or so, she decided she wanted to model. And we went to New York, got her signed with an agency. And from that experience, then she began to travel. So she has spent time living in quite a few countries herself. So we do now both have that in common. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is an Atlanta treasure, Chef Deborah Van Trees. I think I read you pretty much avoid Mexican at Serenidad. Well, we don't avoid it. We like do our plays on it. We have tacos, but we we want it to go a little bit further than, you know, just the taco, you know, just the enchilada. 
you know, just the tamale. You know, ours are a little bit different, you know, but it's a small part of the menu, you know, and then we expand it to other countries. There's things, you know, Venezuelan cuisine on our menu. There's, there's just a lot, you know. Uh, we went to Portugal, we want Peruvian. It's so many Latin-influenced countries to choose from, and we just did not want to stick with, you know, just tacos and burritos. There's enough of that in the city. But their food, when you go traveling in these countries, it's more in depth than that. And we wanted to give that respect to them and do something other than what everyone else does. So I'm thinking about everything you're describing at Serenidad and Orithos, this lovely tribute to your mother and moms around the world, and wondering how you managed to open a few new restaurants when not only did restaurants close permanently as a result of the pandemic, but many people are finding it challenging to reopen or open one. Mm -hmm. I still find it challenging, but I run two challenges. I never run away from them. So the opportunity presented itself. It's a woman over in the Cascade Heights area that lives there. And she's a developer. And she actually tracked me down on Facebook, a lady by the name of Shay Embry. And Shay wanted to invest in the community that she was living in and had lived there for years. You know, but I think originally I came to give her advice on who she could possibly get to open the restaurants. And before I left, we had made an agreement that I would open them. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So we, I was actually definitely actively looking you know, for a, another space to do a different concept in. And this one just kind of fell in my lap and it went from one to two. And then uh, we're planning a third one, but the third one will be a partnership between Shay and my daughter, Kirsten. In addition to culture shifting and how that impacts the way we eat, there are numerous dietary restrictions we're aware of now. Vegan, Mm -hmm. keto, (laughs) gluten-free, to name only a few. Yes. Do you consider dietary restrictions when crafting dishes for your menus? Yes, 100% I do. And there's a formula almost, you know, I know there's pescatarian, so I want to make sure I have fish, I'll have seafood. I know I have to have a couple that are separate. You know, I can't put the fish and seafood together all the time because then you have the people who are allergic to the seafood. That would be me. Yeah, yeah. And the vegan movement is so strong. I've just gotten in a place where I no longer do just vegetarian. I just take it to vegan from the beginning. I am not a fan of a lot of processed food. You know, so the challenge for us is to come up with creative ways to present vegan cuisine, you know, with fresh product, with fresh food from farmers. Gluten-free, same thing. You know, there's always something on there or a few things that are gluten-free. But yes, it, it is a challenge that has, in, in this day and age, it's one that you have to you know, be aware of. 
Your mention of fresh sources takes me back to the first time we dined at Twisted Soul. I had never tasted a fried green tomato like that, but the tomato itself, it looked like something that could have been out of one of those Dutch masters paintings. You know, it was this beautiful green, and it was it was a very thick slice, which was welcome. Who does your marketing? I actually have a couple of people who do my marketing. It's a, again, it's not an easy thing, but it's necessary. You know, it's necessary. Sure. And I would think with more and more local nearby farms producing, I would like to think it's gotten easier because there's certainly an art and science involved to how you buy your produce. Yeah, we have a couple of people, like farmers, who will send me what they're offering weekly. I think there's three or four that quite often you'll find me at Freedom Parkway Farmers Market, you know, just kind of, you know, tooling around or sometimes doing a demo, you know, but it's so inspiring when I'm able to go to the market and just see what's being produced right now. Do you have anything special planned for holiday dining? You know, we've gotten a lot of requests. It's kind of ironic that you've said that because now we've decided, you know what, let's just put it out there. So we are doing meal packages for purchase. I usually offer what it is I want for myself. You know, so some of our best recipes will be offered. You know, I think the protein is important, but I think Thanksgiving and Christmas, it still is all about the sides. I cook it as if it is being served in my home because it is also I'm, what I'm cooking for you know, our customers is exactly what is going to be on my table also. Chef Deborah Van Trees. More information about her two new restaurants, Aretha's at the Point, and Serenidad is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans discusses America's Indian adoption era with the director of a new documentary, Blood Memory, Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. This month, World Channel's series America Reframed celebrates and highlights indigenous communities with several films addressing historical abuse to indigenous peoples and how they're preserving their culture today. The documentary Blood Memory looks at America's Indian adoption era, a federal program that forcibly removed Native American children from their homes and adopted into white families. When City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the film's director, Drew Nicholas, he began talking about how long it took to film Blood Memory. The film itself, from concept to completion, was about a nine to ten year process. In 2010, I, I met a woman in Pittsburgh where I um, live and where I went to film school at a coffee shop. She had overheard my friends and I talking at, a, at this coffee shop and said, oh, I have a story for you. In that conversation, uh, her adoption had, had come up and the, being the thing that relocated her from Minnesota to Pittsburgh when she was younger. And that's what brought her back uh, at this stage in her life that her and I met. And I was like, oh, adoption, that's that's this good. That's a good thing. You know, oh, that's not, you know, and she told me, well, that's not really my experience. Not that's not the experience of many people from my generation. So we started talking about that. And then she brought up the Carlisle boarding schools, which is was located in central Pennsylvania in the town of Carlisle. And it's a town I'm pretty familiar with having grown up traveling through there and never heard of the boarding schools. So that was sort of this big light bulb moment and kind of got me hooked on the story itself, the history, the fact of not knowing that history and how I could get to that point in my life of being a college graduate and never hear about something that took place right under my feet, so to say. So yeah, in my research, I came across Sandy. Uh, she was also mentioned in that initial conversation, the adoptee I had met. And I reached out to Sandy and she said, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you at least initially if you uh, want to come out to my powwow in Minneapolis, which she has since told me she'd never expected I would actually show up to. And, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I came out there in um, November of 2010. And Sandy and I met for the first time. And a good chunk of the footage that was gathered 2010 through 2013 is in the film in sort of the montage of Sandy's back, um, the work that she did to get to the point where she is now. And that's combined with a lot of uh, footage that her husband, George McCauley, has filmed over the years as the work has grown. And Sandy Whitehawk is a part of the Suchangu Lakota tribe, which is in South Dakota. Yeah, South Central South Dakota, right on the Nebraska border, the Suchangu Lakota, Rosebud tribe. So when you first came and met Sandy, what was that experience like? And how did the other people that were on the tribal lands embrace you? And also, um, what was that experience like navigating those sure. indigenous spaces? 
So there, there's a lot of layers to it. Cause like the first time I met Sandy in 2010, that was in Minneapolis, you know, in the uh, American Indian center there. And it was an urban indoor powwow, you know, for children um, and those who had been removed, uh, you know, and so that specifically that day, I got to um, witness the the talking circle for the first time because the, the powwow is taking place downstairs in the gymnasium and then upstairs, there's like a reunification room where those who have been removed, who have experienced adoption or foster care, they kind of get together and just have a talking circle, uh, as you see throughout the film. But this one's really significant because for a lot of folks who participate in that circle, it's their first time back too. It's their first time that they've gone to try and retrace their steps, or they made some big decision to drive from Canada down to Minnesota to, you know, try and meet a cousin. And the magnitude of how um, traumatic and how emotional and how vulnerable of a space that this film was going to go into was right there from day one. And as a 21, 22 year old kid, that was um, a little scary, you know, a little be like, okay, is this something? Well, and also being a white man. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, and that, that whole space was just very, very touchy to navigate to begin with. And I think a lot of it was just, you know, listening at first and just trying to sit back and, just absorb the magnitude of 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 those emotions and uh and then the second piece in going to rosebud itself in 2015 that's when the actual ceremony at the end of the film takes place and the majority of the documentary is really sort of in real time in 2015 the following sandy home that that trip and kind of recreating her first her first experiences and you know these memory recollects of those those moments she's had over the last since the late 80s when she re- returned for the first time and sort of paralleling that return now and bringing this healing circle and this uh creating space for adoptees and those who've been removed through foster care and boarding schools like creating space in the community where those conversations can take place i'm extremely thankful that I had Sandy to sort of, you know, um, shadow in that process because she's creating that space of vulnerability and acceptance. And all I had to do was participate in that and follow the guidelines, you know, just just stay within a certain level of, you know, respect of everything that was around me, understanding that and just trying to work with her on like what was appropriate to film, what wasn't appropriate to film you know, what might take more time. A lot of that's instinct, you know. For example, there's that one scene in the film where her brother and another elder, Kenny Farmer, are talking about their days in boarding school and kind of laughing about, like, you know, getting beat up as kids at the boarding school and all the crazy stuff that that took place that they endured. And And they're using humor to sort of facilitate that conversation. But that that conversation took three years of knowing Leonard and Kenny Mm. and having gone building that trust. Yeah, exactly. And that scene was not done in 2015. That was done on our, one of our last visits to Rosebud in, I think 2018, we were just doing some pickup shots 
to try and fill in some gaps. And we were sitting around the the camp at, at the uh, fair at the Wachipi and that conversation started happening and Sandy's like, are you rolling? And I was like, yeah, I'm rolling. <laughs> Lenny, Leonard, Leonard's talking to me, you know, about mm-hmm. this. Um, right. Showing up and showing up in, in a respectful way, you know. Right. And you can tell how comfortable they are um, having these kind of casual conversations that you would have with family or friends around how they've kind of embraced you because they realized, okay, he's wanting to tell our story, not exploit it. Yeah, I think that that is exactly like the like the central struggle, you know, I think across the board for, you know, non-native folks like myself entering into an indigenous story with a camera. There was a Sterling Harjo, who the one of the creators of Reservation Dogs. When I first started doing this documentary, I was just like, you know, kicking around, reading some articles and stuff. And I came across an article that he was briefly quoted in through a Sundance um, interview. And his whole thing was, if you're from outside a community, coming into that community, no matter who it is, no matter what the community is, and you're trying to tell a story with that community or about that community, he's like, the ultimate question that you need to ask yourself is, you know, why are you doing, like, how is this benefiting the community that the story is about or deriving from? If the number one impact isn't to benefit the people that the story is about, then what's the point of doing it? You know, and so really grappling with that question and trying to figure out like, okay, how much of this is just about us as filmmakers wanting to tell a good story? And where do we draw the line on making sure that personal private information isn't exploited and make sure that those who are sharing their their heartfelt stories in the circle and being vulnerable don't feel exploited. And we did navigate those emotions. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, that would be a tough line to walk, but uh, I think you did that beautifully in the film. Let's go back a little bit. And for people that aren't familiar with America's Indian adoption era and the boarding school era, would you explain a little bit about that and give us um, some backstory to it? Sure. So there's there's a lot of history there. Essentially, the eras that we really dive into in the film and try to sort of identify, like the the boarding school era has become sort of a, a designated time period. And, you know, there's debates on the exact years, but you're essentially talking the late 1800s through the 1960s, 1970s, uh, where the majority of these schools were really taking place. And basically through through the boarding schools, you know, Thousands of kids were put on trains, taken to, re, you know, the other side of, of the country from where their families were. And they were put in schools where they were essentially these were a lot of them were military style schools or very Catholic or Christian schools where they would just have their hair cut, have their names changed. If they spoke their language, they, they would have soap put in their mouth or pins put in their tongue. Everything that could happen to indoctrinate into white society and the way it was sold and erase their culture essentially yeah Um, and that that's part of the you know the broad strokes assimilation period you know and at that time um it was actually seen as like a progressive idea in you know american politics so to say was an american society was like oh instead of outright just killing and massacring native peoples 
the idea was let's bring them into the swim of American citizenship, as Pratt had put it, the founder of Carlisle. So yeah, during that time, through a couple different sub policies of the boarding school era, there was this program called like the outing program. So kids from the school would go spend the summers working on farms or going and spending their summers with a Christian family to learn more about white family dynamics and white communal dynamics. And the the idea was keep them away from going home for the summers because they might not come back to the school. So we keep them close to the school. They never leave. A lot of these children never, never left over the 12 years that they were in school or never came home, period. There are grave sites at these schools, which I'm sure a lot of listeners, if they know about these schools, have heard these things. Again, the the slogan, just for those who haven't heard of the school, like the sort of unofficial slogan of this era of schools was kill the Indian and save the man or save the child was like the, the concept behind it. So through these outing programs, a lot of the, the ideas started to come like, oh, we should just put kids in these white homes. And then that's sort of where the spring off of the adoption era starts to like materialize uh, adoption and child services across the country starts to bloom as like a as a practice through the 40s and the early 1950s so you have this explosion of interest in native kids because they were like quote unquote like more exotic and like there became marketing campaigns by government funded child welfare league of america created the indian adoption project and in the 60s they started just like putting out numbers and you know, really promoting like, oh, adopt an Indian kid. It's this life-saving thing. And they really tapped into that need for people to want to adopt, you know, and that sort of growing desire. So then by the late 70s, there was a study, uh, a, a group of mothers from uh, a tribe in North Dakota. Spirit Lake is currently, is the name of the tribe now, but it used to be called Devil's Lake. And a group of mothers from there were noticing that every time they spoke with other elder women about the the loss of children, you know, and they realized like, this isn't just our community. This is every community. Every, every community. tribe community. Yeah. Every community mm-hmm. that we know, we're hearing, you know, these numbers and the, the so the, they put together a, a push to get information, a push for research. And the research uncovered that roughly 25 to 35% of children had been removed from their tribal communities and placed into state or, you know, federal, you know, government ran or religiously ran uh, institutions, whether it be adoption, foster care, boarding schools. As a result of this one third of children disappearing, there was a push to ratify the Indian Child Welfare Act. And it was led by a whole bunch of groups, but it ultimately came down to like Senator James Aberesk is the one who presented it, and he was representing South Dakota uh, at the time, and he put together some hearings in the 70s, uh, which created, you know, some documentation to build on. And then ICWA got passed, and the idea of ICWA is, um, you know, to preserve Native families. It, It created guidelines for when a children is potentially in need of being removed from an unhealthy situation that their placement of where they go is it's prioritized by their immediate family, their extended tribal family, the extended tribal community across Indian country, and making inquiries into those levels before that child is placed outside of the community. And that's basically what ICWA says. 
It's just trying to preserve family and culture by keeping kids connected to their tribes. And currently, the Supreme Court is deciding on the future of ICWA, which is stands for the Indian Child Welfare Act. And after 40 years, this decision of whether or not Native children can be adopted by non-Native people is being decided upon. So this documentary seems as timely as ever. Yeah, it, it's it's a little wild how over, you know, it took 10 years to make the film and still this is ongoing, you know. Um, this law got passed in 1978 and it's still at the center of a lot of controversy, you know, over 40 years later. It's a really complicated argument and it's a really complicated discussion, but essentially there's a lot of, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot of Indian law at stake. Uh, A lot of the things that determine tribal rights, tribal sovereignty, you know, when it comes to the ability to have gaming, when it comes to the ability of um, controlling who's building pipelines and, and how those things get decided, that's all built into the counter argument here. This isn't just about children. Um, and there's a lot of, de- there's a lot of more in-depth exploration of that law done by Rebecca Nagel, who uh, has a podcast, This Land, This Land podcast. Season one, she gets into it a little bit. And then season two, she dives specifically in on this law and, and the cases surrounding it. She uses some some content from our film and some content that didn't make the cut to our film, which is pretty cool. So yeah, that's that's a great resource for people who want to know more about sort of what the Supreme Court is looking at and what they are deciding. But essentially, the the central argument, as far as I understand, is the unconstitutional challenge really kind of hinges around this idea of tribal sovereignty being a political status and not a racial status. So I'm racially Caucasian, right? But I'm a U.S. citizen. A tribal citizen, they're a citizen, Sandy is a citizen of the Sichangu Nation, and she is racially American Indian. And these laws, the laws that govern, you know, Indian country are a nation to nation relationship. It's different. It creates that political identification. And they're arguing that because um, the Indian Child Welfare Act creates different standards to meet for native children that it's unconstitutional because, because they're arguing that it's based on race and not yes. political status. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. Very complicated um, issue at hand. That's to be decided maybe this year at the end of the film, Sandy Whitehawk says anyone who returns to their homeland feels that reconnect something that is in our DNA. And that is what she calls blood memory. Thus, the title of this documentary. Why do you think it's important to the Native American, indigenous people in particular, to reconnect and learn more about their culture, especially those that have been adopted or taken away from that culture? Yeah, I think it's across the board. I, I think there's there's a universality to that. I mean, there's specific indigenous elements to that, obviously. When something, every piece of the identity is 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 attempted to be whittled down systematically over generations and five hundreds of years. Um, to reclaim that is obviously a huge uh, a huge win. It's a it's a huge self reclamation, you know. Uh, 
that especially when a lot of adoptees have gone through extremely abusive placements where they themselves were attempted to be Christianized and, and told they were pagans and told that they were the devil. And if they spoke their language, you know, completely dehumanized, you know, and Sandy's story is very much like that. And even in loving scenarios where abuse isn't rampant, there's individual identifiers that people struggle with, you know, having gone through being the only native person in an entirely white uh, community that they were adopted into in the middle of the Midwest and having to sort of navigate that self-hate and that, that racism. So there's that personal piece of it, but I think throughout, I tried to figure out like, okay, how is this, how does this connect universally to every audience that's viewing and watching, you know? And I think we all yearn for, reconnecting to who we are you know i think we all feel disconnected in in some way in our lives you know whether it be a a strange family membership or um a parent who has passed or a sibling who has passed or whatever it may be you know i think the the film and and the experience in making it just made me appreciate sort of like familial relations that much more you know and and the things that we yearn for that to me is sort of like what makes my heart sing at the end of that film, you know, what kind of hits me emotionally is like seeing these families taking that huge first step in healing, you know, really resonates. Drew Nicholas, director of the film Blood Memory. The documentary is airing and streaming on the World Channel Thursday at 8 p.m. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, contributor Vaughn Phoenix joins us with music recommendations on this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon Punk Black. And he joins us monthly to highlight artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the music, art, cosplay, and neural communities. Each month, I bring you bands from Atlanta and beyond that I love and I know you will enjoy. So without further ado, here are a few bands you need to listen to this month. All right, normally I do a story about Punk Black, but for this month, I thought I'd change it up a little bit. In the spirit of the holidays, even though we know this holiday is centered around a murderer, which we all know, and if you don't know, I mean, you should know. But in the spirit of the name, I figured I would just say a few things I'm thankful for. First, I'm thankful for y'all. Without y'all, Punk Black, NPR, none of this, we wouldn't exist. It's y'all listening, y'all supporting. 
y'all keep all of this alive. So we love y'all. We appreciate y'all. Thank you. Secondly, I'm thankful for my family. I have um, a really, really groovy family, honestly. I have an amazing sister. She's amazing. She's one of my best friends. And I have two super dope parents um, in, a, in a bunch of ways. Um, just something random that I was thankful for recently is that a lot of the skills my father taught me as far as like repairing things and fixing things around the house. I actually almost had a <laughs> electric fire the other day, which, um, you know, I had to put out everything and then had to change out the outlet and everything like that. But just thinking about the things that my dad taught me growing up, I was like, I'm so thankful that I have the confidence to be able to do things like that. As well as my mom, who is like a major, major MVP. Um, she kills it every time helping out with the family. She's kept all of us together through the years. She's amazing. Yeah, I love my family. So that's the second thing. And the third thing, of course, is Punk Black. Punk Black has taught me so many things throughout the years and has brought me so many new connections, friends, enemies, <laughs> um, loved ones, you, you know, you name it. And I feel like it'll bring me more throughout the years. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for a community that can support people of color in the music, art, cosplay, and neural communities. Um, I wish it was something that we had growing up. So I feel really thankful to have had help in creating it and helping to move it on going forward. So in the spirit of the name, those are the things I'm thankful for. Oh, and a, uh, and a PS, I'm also thankful for my mom's mac and cheese, which I will definitely be having pretty soon uh, the, <laughs> this month. It's amazing. It's the best mac and cheese in the world. It completely destroys all your mom's macaroni and cheese. Don't even, you can hit me up, you can message me, and you can send me pictures, your recipes or whatever. It's not going to touch my mom's macaroni and cheese. <laughs> but without further ado, <laughs> here are a few bands you need to listen to this month. First up, let's start with Plastique. Plastique is a new band on the scene, actually, and I love, I love hearing about new bands. So there are two types of new bands to me, um, just to like just go on this tangent real quick. There are two types of new bands. So you have one type of new band who is like completely new musicians. They pretty much just started there. They're getting together and everything like that, which Plastic isn't. They're a band of veterans. But, you know, like I said, I like these two types of bands for different reasons. But there's a type of band that when they first start off, they really didn't know how to play the instruments. Um, and this actually, I love those types of bands because they don't have a lot of the musical prejudices that bands who've been playing for a long time have. Um, when you're a new artist or a new musician, starting a craft, you don't really focus on trying to make something sound like this. You don't try to focus on making something sound like that. You just focus on the music. And a lot of those times, even though the music is a little rusty, sometimes it's out, more times than not, it's out of tune. Um, and sometimes, honestly, it sounds like garbage. But through the garbage, you can see, <laughs> I know it's crazy, but through the garbage, you can just see these elements of genius. And a, a lot of like younger bands bring those. And I love, I love seeing younger bands come up like that. But I also love veteran bands, which Plastique is. They have veteran musicians that have been playing for a long time, and you can hear like, the skill come through the music. They're more of like a math rock, prog, sort of rock alternative band. Really, really great sounding band. I really love them. Um, Noah Estrella is like the bass player. Honestly, he can carry a band by himself. He plays on a five or six string. And whenever you see a bass player with a six string, it's just always a sight to behold. Like a bass player is playing six strings, they're normally pretty beast, um, and if they're not, they're uh, an anomaly. <laughs> but anyway, I'll let you hear the music for yourself. Here's Grub by Plastique.
That was Grub by Plastique. You can find them on Instagram at PlastiqueATL. That's P-L-A-S-T-I-Q-U-E-A-T-L. Next up, we have The Tissues. The Tissues actually became one of my favorite bands. You know, I was going to say quite recently, but it's more so in the last two, two and a half years. Um, we really wanted them to play our California festival when we were doing it out there. But, you know, COVID happened, and then y- y'all know how it goes. Everything died for two years as far as shows goes. But really, really great band. Uh, a mixture of, like, post-punk, alternative. Um, they kind of, like, dabble around in different genres. If I were to compare them to a band, I would compare them to Molecat Doma. It's a Russian post-punk band, at least as far as, like, some of the rhythms and, like, the groove and how how good they are. All of the music is really, really bumping. I love playing it in the mornings. I love playing at night. I love playing in the you know, evenings. It doesn't matter. You can play the tissues at any time of day during any situation, and they're going to get it bumping. Again, I'll let you listen to them so you can determine where you want to play them at, which will be all day, I'm telling you. This is Paint It Black by The Tissues. That was Paint It Black by The Tissues. You can find The Tissues on Instagram as The Tissues. Exactly how it sounds, but I'll still spell it just in case because I'm a horrible speller and, you know, you might be too. No worries. It happens to the best of us and the worst of us. But (laughs) you can find them on Instagram at The Tissues. That's T-H-E-T-I-S-S-U-E-S, The Tissues. All right. Last up, but certainly not least, we have Chidori. Of course, all the uh, anime nerd fans were like, their ears perked up. A lot of them have seen Naruto, and the people who haven't are being like, oh, man, you know, this man be watching anime. You know, I, people have, like, a <laughs> such weird connotations and such weird thoughts about people still watch anime nowadays, even though it's more popular. But I'm 32 years old, and I still dig it. I watch anime all the time. So Chidori is a post-hardcore band from Atlanta. Again, newer band on the spirit of me. And they are amazing. Like, instant headbanging moshing ability um so of course um if you don't know what that means just like as soon as you hear them you're going to be moshing you're gonna if you got long hair even if you got short hair you're gonna be acting like you got long hair and you're gonna be spinning in circles that's how i feel every time i listen to this band immediately want to start mosh bits in my living room and i'm pretty sure you'll want to do the same (laughs) so here is their song consider us the human That was Consider Us the Human by Chidori. You can find Chidori on Instagram at Chidori underscore music. So for all you non-Naruto nerds, this is how you spell Chidori. You know, no offense, of course. It's going to be C-H-I-D-O-R-I underscore M-U-S-I-C. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we would not be here without you. For WAB City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. More information about Punk Black, as well as the bands mentioned today, are on our website, 
wabe.org slash City Lights. The Creatives Project is accepting applications for their 2023 Artist in Studio Residence Program. Jennifer Long, the Executive Director, tells us more about the nonprofit. The Creatives Project is the city's first nonprofit supporting the creative class through artist residencies and affordable housing programs. We've been around now for 10 years with the mission of uniting arts, education, community, and commerce, really creating an arts ecosystem that empowers Atlanta citizens. The residency program provides six Atlanta-based visual artists with free studio spaces professional development, and exhibition opportunities. In exchange for these services, each applicant must commit to an arts-based community outreach project. The residency is a two-year cycle beginning in January 2023. The deadline to apply is Sunday, November 27th. More information about submission materials and requirements is available on their website, thecreativesproject.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art's new exhibition, More Than Dreams, Exploring the Surreal in Art. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.